0: the Influencer Collective Show. I'm your host, Jen Sherman, and we have a very special guest today, another female entrepreneur, Allison Greenberg. She's a verbal brand strategist and also the CEO and co-founder of Dioptra. Welcome, Allison. How are you doing today?
1: Thanks so much, Jen. It's great to see you again. Um, I'm doing well, as well as can be. And, uh, you know, last time we connected was at the Voice Summit in Newark last summer. It was a very
0: different world but I'm glad that we can at least do this over video. Over video, yeah. I mean, I think it probably would have been around, no, well, it was around this time last year. It was around this time last year. So we're reconnecting, reconnecting. Well, it's so great to have you on. I know that automatically I spotted you in the conference. and I was like, I need to talk to that woman. I need to talk to that more. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I think what I would love for us to start with um, is to tell the audience a little about your entrepreneur journey um, and you know, you and I are around the same age and we started at a pretty young age, um, the hustle and bustle of it. So I would love, love to start there. Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, so my career started actually in the agency world and I moved right to New York after college. I had majored in anthropology and loved the intersection of kind of culture and the modern world and um, understanding behavior through culture. And so I thought the way to do that in the private sector was to go into advertising. And, you know, advertising in New York is an intense kind of experience, long hours. When you're young, you're really at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, But my first job in pharmaceutical advertising actually gave me a really good sort of crash course in what it means to do client services. And so from there, um, I worked at a couple of other places and wound up at a brand strategy firm. And that was kind of where I built my knowledge base and verbal brand strategy. So while I was at Siegel and Gale, I was working for like fortune 100 companies um, doing kind of verbal strategy and and really naming a lot of products, companies, and services. And so I'd always loved language and I loved being able to connect it to behavior. And so that's kind of all we did was we used language strategically for brands, um, and especially to create brand identities. So fast forward a couple of years after that, I worked at a design firm, I worked at a research um, agency, and then um, my first co-founder, Seth Miller, and I started a flow. And that was really my first, I, I had done some entrepreneurship, some consulting indep- independently, but that was my first venture into being completely self-employed. And mind you, you know the life of a solo entrepreneur of, or of a small company is really you do consulting, you do whatever you can on the side to keep afloat totally. So I know that was really kind of your experience as well. But when Seth and I started a flow, we just built up slowly, and it was a conversational AI studio. So really different from my career in branding, um, but actually leveraging language just the same to build chatbots and voice experiences for Alexa and Google Assistant. Um, And so we, you know, really gave that a great run for two years. And then just recently, I've sort of maintained self-employment throughout. And just recently, my co-founder, new co-founder, Audrey Wu, and I uh, started Dioptra. And so I'm making another pivot. That's kind of what happens to me every two years. I'm like, what's next? (laughs) I love it. Um, Yeah. And this is a a medical device company. We are rethinking and uh, redesigning the speculum, um, finally hoping to claim women's health as our own.
0: Yeah, which is, when you originally told me this a couple of weeks ago we spoke, I was like, I had no idea that these devices being used at the doctor were from, like, age, like, like you know, I would say, you know, stone ages, but, you know, from a very, very long time ago. Not yeah. yeah, not far off, but that's, I mean, that's awesome. And, and you know, first of all, congratulations on, on just going from the corporate world to self-employment it's definitely a pivot but it has its perks and it's not perks but what i love is at the end of the day i it's it's up to me and it's mine versus someone else's
1: 100 percent. yeah i think especially when this pandemic set in you know there was a lot of fear about loss of employment there was a lot of you know things that i was hearing from the agency world about layoffs and i never felt like i had job security i have to be honest with you agencies you know you're always hunting that next contract with a brand i never felt like i had job security but becoming self-employed it's simultaneously precarious you really have to be your own business development engine while you're also doing your own work um but i actually felt protected i felt like having been self-employed before this all set in it means you know how to hunt work you know how to sort of weather the boom and bust cycle And so, you know, I'm really grateful for it. I certainly saw some client work drop off, but, um, I, I feel really lucky to be also building a business right now in a time when the world is sort of slowing down a little bit.
0: Yeah, no. And you made a really good point, Alison, because I was thinking about that right in March and this all set in, and of course there was some movement with clients or a slow movement with new business development, because a lot of businesses kind of went into, okay, uh, I'm stopping everything and they froze or they were like trying to put band-aids on things. i was like, I don't know if I can even help with a band-aid because you're moving too quickly and I don't want to get into that, you know, situation or they're looking longer term. So some industries that are kind of can ride the storm, but to your point, you know, what's interesting about self-employment is that, you know, you're, if the, like you said, with an agency, I always didn't know either. Just the pressure I put on myself to always like with an with agency life because I was an agency background too was very difficult and it's like the sense of insecurity that you're not always doing enough but mm-hmm. with the business is the world could be crashing all around you but you're in control and you can hustle and bustle right like you just hustle and freaking bustle and that's security to me and I think that you made such a good point and it's funny it's like personally I've weathered a bigger storm in the past three years that when I have ran the business and I know that the world is weathering a pretty big storm, but if I can at least weather a personal storm and keep it moving, I think I can do this, you know? Totally.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, when you're, I, I've obviously like hired contractors and I've worked in teams, but when all you really are responsible for is yourself, that's pretty protective you know it's i don't have a bunch of employees that i was worried about laying off i when i work with people or hire them it's always on a contract basis and you know really all we have to do is make our ends meet right and it's about building from there but i think when it comes to client work and the relationships that we've spent years building you know those are there in a time of crisis and a lot of the businesses that I work on, I'm just very lucky that a lot of the businesses I work on are somewhat recession or pandemic proof. You know, so my clients in the telecom space, in the health mm-hmm. space, um, in the sort of NGO space, like they're still operating, and I think they're a lot more likely to hire somebody like you or me who's scalable um, than to have to go to an agency, than to have to be ex- responsible for a much bigger team.
0: Ex- exactly and that's something where you know fortunately so with the consulting small business model is that like you hire you're hiring allison you're hiring hiring jen now i'm jen and Page now because i have you know um my colleague who is amazing but you know and i have to now say no it's jen and Page. It's not just me now you know you have to look get to know her too but it's still two people versus like versus you know an agency or a full-time hire for or because if you have to for example if you need like a a marketing consulting team or a marketing team, right? You know, typically, especially during these times, the, the first to go is marketing, but they still need marketing. They just don't want to pay the, like, the full t- marketing team. So then they're going to want to outsource it to a consultant. Right.
1: Yeah. And on the flip side, you know, my, my co-founder and I are obviously a team on the medical device we're working on. But when when covid first set in i think a lot of folks who are developing innovations were saying oh my god this is going to be a bad look for vc and you know let me be clear it's already a bad look for vc when you're a woman because you know it's like 9% of venture capitalists are women and i think it's only about 4% of health tech funding or healthcare research and development is going to women's health so, we were already at a disadvantage, and we were really lucky that our strategy, sort of from the start, since we're pre seed and we're still very early on with a version one prototype, our strategy from the very beginning was to approach accelerators for funding. So, you know, we're currently in the sort of final stages of a potential position with an accelerator out in LA. And something that's really exciting is that we've also had conversations with accelerators in Minneapolis and in other parts of the country, in Nashville. This They are basically all remote now,
0: which is crazy.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. So this world of sort of accelerating innovations and getting grant funding um, is opening up and it's a lot less regional than it used to be, which is a benefit. And all those funds were earmarked versus venture capital dollars, which, you know, for some VC firms, they're contracting a lot right now
0: yeah it it, access to capital is to your point access to capital is probably a little easier right now for certain industries not all but health of course being one of them as that's one of the hot hot industries at the moment um and it's exciting because healthcare and health tech i think normally would have a little slower slower to market innovation-wise because people really just get caught up but now we have to accelerate because we have to, and hospitals are working together where they were working in silos now. And so I really think like the access to capital and the idea of how we can collaborate at a national level versus in our silos is, is actually more um, apparent than ever.
1: Definitely, yeah. And just in our space, you know, we started the company
0: uh, last year in November
1: and we're already seeing a ton of growth in this kind of nexus of healthcare and industry. So it's really exciting. I mean, the, the uh, Cedar sinai Accelerator in LA is one of the ones that we're most excited about. And unfortunately, they're not gonna have a class. They're really focused on COVID prevention and, and on dealing with the sort of pandemic at hand. Um, but we applied for their class and, and we're definitely going to continue our interests. You know, they're directly connected to a healthcare system. They have doctors and, and other HCPs who are able to support a research and development process. And we're kind of seeing that spread across the country. You know, there's, there's like health tech funds and health tech um, organizations and accelerators like Techstars that are always kind of involved mm-hmm. in this space. But we're also seeing hospital systems like New York Presbyterian and um, Mount Sinai, they're all starting to build their own internal Healthcare programs, healthcare accelerator programs, because they want to own the innovation and they want to be able to dispense it directly in their hospital systems.
0: Yeah, and something interesting that you just made because, you know, being in the DMV, you know, we have John Hopkins, we have NIH. Um, hey, what's up, Dr. Fauci? Um, but <laughs> the thing is, and, and, and everything's been like, oh, you know, it was, came out of NIH, it came out of John Hopkins, but now we're probably seeing a bunch of different hospitals who are creating similar programs. Which is amazing within their within their systems.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, it's really inspiring. And even to see, you know, we were at a, a sort of presentation from an accelerator that's uh, out of United Healthcare. Um, so there's even insurance companies that have partnered. United has partnered with TechStars to create its own accelerator for health tech, and it's only had one class. Um, But, you know, everybody kind of wants to get on this train because if you can help support the growth of whether it's a med tech company or a medical device like us, you know, there's a little less funding, um, a little less flexibility for devices, but there's just so much interest in being able to sort of incubate the innovation there and then put it right into practice and also to get credit because these insurance companies and healthcare providers Um, you know, it's, it's just an incredibly competitive space. So the more that these institutions can sort of back companies like ours who are really trying to make healthcare better, um, but also profit from it, but also, you know, create wealth for certain, you know, unexpected groups of entrepreneurs. And for us, it's, it's definitely about being the first woman owned, uh, Speculum device on the market. There isn't one. This is a device that's exclusively used on vagina owners, and there isn't one that has been designed by women uh, to date. So, you know, we love when we see that these accelerator programs are not just about creating innovations, creating, you know, wealth and development, but they're also looking at
0: DI metrics. And I think today, more than
1: ever, there's really concern for are there women and minority owned businesses in the mix?
0: Yeah, so speaking of which, I would love to talk a little bit more about that, because that's something that, especially last year, even when I met you, um, really just fueled by, right? Like, and 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 personally, both of us seeing those, um, uh, kind of this, looking at the system and seeing that the system is not really catering to female business owners or minority business owners. And frankly, you know, I'm type, I'm like kind of that optimist, right? You got out of school and you know started my business at 25 i'm like you know you know screw the glass ceiling you know i'm, I'm gonna that, that like screw the glass ceiling like let's go like like let's do this and i don't i'm not going to be not i'm not going to be taken down but i'm not going to give in to the system mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like on my charge, on my charge. And then the system I'm seeing, and then I got affected by the system. You know, once you get affected by the system, you're like, this is, this really stinks. And this is not, this is not okay by any means. Um, And I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that and dive into it because it's an issue that is, needs to continue to be discussed because it's not, there's, I don't really see a lot of improvement. I see improvement where there's female entrepreneurs and stuff, but to your point of, you know, VCs, how how many VCs and how much of that capital is, you know, driven or managed by women? Yeah, minimal. Minimal. Minimal.
1: I mean, we're talking about 3% of venture capital overall goes to women-owned businesses, women entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, I think you're so right. It's a lot of the conversation today around race, around gender, um, you know, Black Lives Matter is such an important wake up moment for this country because I think there's been a lot of complacency that, you know, we have made progress. We're, we're doing better. We continue to make that progress. Um, and then I think to a lesser extent that conversation is happening around feminism and it needs to be more intersectional, first of all, because I think you and I as white women are definitely at an advantage, can definitely sort of exist as solo entrepreneurs or build businesses with more ease than our BIPOC counterparts but you know in general we are not where we need to be with any of this with any marginalized group um, and I saw that firsthand when I started a flow. and when my co-founder and I entered the world of conversational AI I had worked for a lot of tech companies you know I had companies like um, Google and Microsoft as clients but um, being a tech company and then coming to the table, going to conferences and seeing how few women there were, and then especially how few women leaders, you know I was always frustrated by that. And so my, one of my big platforms when we were working conversational AI became a focus on gender equity. And that was really spurred on actually by, um, by a lot of research done by really brilliant people and by uh, institutions like the UN releasing reports Um, The one they released in May of 2019 basically declared conversational AI something that contributed to a human rights crisis. And I know a lot of people thought that sounded dramatic, but it's not. It's, you know, when you see Alexa and Siri and Cortana, the majority of voice assistants are female um, and they can convey a persona of a woman who can be told what to do and we have generations of children who are being raised issuing orders to Alexa um, and expecting her to do everything that they say and and heed heed their commands without saying please or thank you or really considering that they're um, ingraining a pattern into their minds. Um, That to me was just unacceptable. So I really started to kind of build towards what can we do to fix this? And for many of our clients, many of the projects I did, the, the question of persona came up. If we're working on an assistant or a chat bot, you know, mm-hmm. what's a persona? And my platform was always like, if, if it doesn't need to be female, make it genderless or don't make it female because we can't have 80% of these basically robotic entities pretending to be female when, you know, chatbots and conversational assistants don't need a gender. Um, so that was really, Frustrating to me. And then I think after two years in that space, I started to realize that um, we had already made a lot of mistakes. We had already ingrained a lot of the biases of the physical world into the digital world. Um, And, you know, I'm also an optimist. I don't think it's too late. But I do think when we see a movement like Black Lives Matter or these realizations about computer vision and computer learning having such bias really baked into the algorithm, you realize that something um, like an image recognition software, you know, it, it can't continue to exist the way it does. And it's been inspiring to see a lot of tech companies really step up. And I know that, you know, Google and Microsoft have actually sort of taken down their um, facial recognition softwares and they're trying to improve the computer vision by including more people of color. Um, there has been an effort to, to sort of broaden the spectrum of conversational assistance, but at a certain point, I was like, okay, I just want to have an impact on the physical world. And that's what led way to the medical device.
0: Yeah, and which I love. See, like, and I, and I remember we spoke last year about um, the study that you're referring to with uh, the voice assistants. And quite frankly, that's like a, I would love to, to co- combat that, but let's figure, like, like you just said, let's let's focus on the physical at the moment because there's a lot of work to be done there and, you know, going back to Black Lives Matter, and, and typically as a business owner, you know, I'm not someone who likes to talk politics, religion, anything, you know, I really like to keep things equal. I, I love working with um, males as counterparts, you know, it's never male or female bashing, it's more like, I've always been like, how can we all work together, in a mm-hmm. sense, but, but my opinion matters just as much as your opinion, and because I have a strong voice as well as a woman, right, but to your point, with Black Lives Matter, this is a time where we need to have a conversation, we need to talk about it, right? We need to talk about it because the more we all talk about it, who the people of influence, that is when we can really create change and continuing to talk about it. I mean, what happened was happening with in June with the demonstrations. I mean, that is something that it was igniting it, but we need to we need to keep pushing the pedal because we need to ignite the change and going into the system, you know, the system is, the system is just like uh, the medical device. It's from the it's 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 ancient. The system's ancient. It needs to be modernized, honey. You know, it just needs to be modernized, and I think that it takes more than just the administration, right? It takes it takes it takes the private sector. You know, it, the private sector, as we've seen, particularly in this pandemic, is GE. All these companies who are making these devices and masks and everything to help the public, right? What companies are doing after um, the with with the Black Lives Matter movements and electing more um, people of color as leadership, right? Who probably deserve not deserve they should be in that position, but they're recognizing how not diverse leadership is, right? So like the Reddit, I think it was the Reddit CEO um, who stepped down, and and I was like, bless your heart, because that's what you, that's a, that was appropriate, right? That was appropriate, and he took the responsibility for that, and I think you know, just talking about access to opportunity. Yes, you and I as white females, we, all, we probably have a little bit different than frankly, people of color because it's just, it's different, right? I mean, you don't, but that's still not fair. And there's still issues with the, just being a female entrepreneur.
1: Totally, yeah. And just before this interview, you know, you and I were kind of comparing notes. I think, like you said, there's a lot of systems in place that are just so outdated that are not built for us. Um, that frankly just weren't built for the digital world. But, you know, whether it's getting a mortgage or filing for a small business loan or setting up an LLC, you know, it's so many of these processes are outdated. I love to tell the story of when we filed the LLC for a flow in New York City. You know, one of the requirements for filing an LLC, this is is not gender biased or racially biased, it's just inefficient and dumb. Um, But, you know, there's a publishing requirement So you have to publish in multiple newspapers for multiple weeks on end that you have filed an LLC when you're doing so in the state of New York. That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. It does not. No. And I think it's single-handedly keeping small newspapers afloat. Um, But, you know, the goal of it probably in the 1800s was that that was a form of letting the the community know that your business was open. Um, And obviously that doesn't make any sense. But you know, as entrepreneurs, I think we really kind of sharpen this tool of cutting out bureaucracy of getting around regulations. I mean, we, we did it, we filed uh, our LLC, and we met the publishing requirement. But it's, it's all about making sure that you can start to create your own system that you can build something if it doesn't exist. Um, and that you can create efficiencies and also, you know, Our connection is absolutely about creating community among female entrepreneurs, because I love when I hear of somebody who needs the support of something like the Influencer Collective and being able to say, I want to send you to Jen. I'd much rather do that than send you to, you know, some long established agency or guy who's doing the same thing, but not supporting himself and his own business.
0: No, and it's so true because, you know, just going to systems of, you know, even just a mortgage or something like that, where, you know, we hustle and bustle. We have to wake up every day and like basically account for the money we're gonna make for that month or for that year. I mean, it takes, it, it's a lot. And then, if, and then if you actually have a successful business and then you wanna go in and, you know, even with putting aside a mortgage for even a house or an office, I mean, I was talking to another female entrepreneur of mine and she's trying to buy a building um, to run an industrial building for her business. And the loopholes, and yes, it's it's a pretty, it's an expensive building. But the things that she has to go through in order to even acquire that, and and, and especially, it's it's ridiculous. It it is it is really ridiculous. And even after we saw the two thousand eight housing crisis happen, which was really predominantly driven by uh, married couples, we're we we have not changed the system. We're still, we're still catering to that, which doesn't make, it still in my mind any sense. Like, would don't we learn our lesson and maybe just expand or like rethink our, our approach to loans, you know, and it's just, it's, it's pure silliness in my, in my opinion, it's silly. It is. Well, it, it, it's silly and it's lazy and, you know,
1: lazy is, is something that I would say in part on the, on the behalf of individuals, but also, you know, large institutions can't move quickly. Um, so you know, I think it's really inspiring to see tons of female entrepreneurs kind of getting together and sharing best practices. And also to see that like small organizations and nonprofits and and organizations like accelerators have sort of become our backbone because when the government and traditional lenders aren't really there to support us, we have to look to alternative sources of funding, alternative sources of information, And yeah, I mean, it's when you're a single female solo entrepreneur or somebody who runs a small business, there's just so much stacked against you. So (laughs) so funny, I'm sure you get this too, but a lot of friends, when I first became self-employed, a lot of friends were like, I can't imagine that. What are you going to do about your health insurance? Like, you know, what happens if you have a dry month? And now that we're in the midst of a pandemic, I kind of feel like everybody starts to question like- how do i make sure that there's a foundation under me we're dealing with such massive unemployment and you know when you have a dry month as somebody who's self-employed you're having a lot of the same concerns but you know you have to continue to hit the pavement you have to continue to work the relationships that you have and exactly you know sometimes you you take jobs that you don't want to because they're a source of income and other times you don't because you just say my business is, is about me doing the kind of work that I think is going to be valuable for my long-term growth. And so I'm not going to take that job or I am going to eat a month of ramen.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. That I can't recover. And you know, it's going to be in service of a a larger vision. So we're, we're kind of constantly dealing with that. Like, I don't know what next month or next year is going to look like, but you're always, always. trying yeah. to move towards something bigger than just now.
0: It's so true. January is always a fresh year and everyone's like, you know, Jen, why don't you just always just have like year long contracts? I'm like, you don't understand. You can put a contract in place. That doesn't matter. If, you know, that, if, if especially with the if something with happens with the company, then the contract ends, like it's it's really just about building long-term relationships, with your clients and, and have them become family. So you have that comfort, but anything could happen. And to your point, you know, we're we've always for at least for me is like I know that it could be a dry month, and so I've always like kind of lived in that frugal that aspect where I've created that runway for myself just in case, God forbid, there is one. Where for us, we were like made for the pandemic because we we've all, I, in my opinion, I've been basically I I always have that mindset that something a, sh- a shoe could drop, and and if it does, like. And if if you know you lose a client, I just get back out on the horse and keep hustling. Always the hustle. And I think the problem is with, you know, having someone who is employed and used to that kind of com- like cushion, it's 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 a it's a shell shock for them when they do potentially, you know, hopefully not lose a job, but there is a lot of unemployment because then they're like, Well, what do I do now? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And and I've often heard, you know, I've I've talked to a handful of friends who have lost their jobs during this time. And I think you know their question is always like where do you start and it's so discouraging and you know like there there are job boards there are facebook groups but like where do you really get traction and i think it's exactly as you said you start with relationships you start with making it known that you do what you do you know i've had to reach out to a whole new set of contacts to say hey remember when i worked in pharmaceutical advertising world well, now i'm trying to build a medical device And it's like, wait a second, but weren't you just building chatbots? Like where did this come out of? Um, You have to educate people. You have to be your own PR person in a lot of ways. Um, But also I often remind people that, you know, gigs and relationships can come from all kinds of places. It can come from a Facebook group. They can come from a LinkedIn message. Um, I think like using the right keywords to describe your services and your skill set i've gotten a ton of work off of facebook especially from uh for my naming skills and and on linkedin you know if you have any sort of a specialized skill just marketing yourself well is really the first step to sort of building a client base um but you know i've also been sort of building over time these relationships where you do favors for friends and they do those favors back for you Um, And it it is really powerful to be able to bring somebody into a, a potential client conversation and to do business development as sort of like these small impromptu teams. And so, yeah, I mean, it's all we really have are ourselves at the end of the day, but we also have each other and we can kind of nimbly build a team and put a project together as self-employed people in a way that I felt like I never could, um, when I was working on a team at an agency, there was just so much more sort of infrastructure around you.
0: Yeah, I know, I completely agree. I, you know, you just have your people. I have my, like my teams, you know, I just have my teams, my, my, um, you know, either they're, they're, they're everyone, like, but, but it's, but it's the network that you build and putting that out there and saying what you do, because, you know, and where to start, it's like, I can, I can help you get started, but like it takes that fuel, you need that fire inside your belly. If you're going to hustle for your, for that, for that coin every single day, you know, you need the fire, you need the fire to start. So uh, Allison, just to kind of uh, wrap up here, I I would love to hear just what, you know, your advice is to particularly um, the future generations, because, you know, we have Gen Z who are in the market, in the marketplace right now, um, in the economy, and I just was curious, like, you know, we ha- we have a system that's really old, but I really feel that Gen Z is gonna light it up and really try to help change it. So I wanted to get your opinion, not opinion, but at least if you had some words of advice for uh the younger folks out there. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, I think basically what we've been talking about, um, being solo entrepreneurs or being female entrepreneurs is about building this foundation of knowing that you can kind of continue onward no matter what and I think we could only do that because we did have time as employees and part of big organizations and you know really powerful organizations that had reputation and and strong client base but anytime I talk to members of Gen Z I try to encourage them to see themselves as a business no matter whether they're an employee or they're self-employed you know increasingly they're part of this gig economy and they kind of start as freelancers but the more you see yourself as a business the more you see yourself as self-employed even when you have a full-time job i think the more um, safety net you're creating under yourself and whether that means creating content you know you're you're the queen of this of of building sort of multi-dimensional aspects of who you are and what you do whether it's a podcast or just publishing some articles on medium, um, having a social media platform that isn't just about your personal life that also integrates your professional life. I think that's kind of a lifelong process. And the more you can do that from a young age, producing that kind of content um, and doing it on the channels that are relevant, you know, maybe that's TikTok right now, or maybe it's just producing really thoughtful things about your area of interest and area of expertise. Those are things that you own and, and they will always be underneath your name. When you're working for an organization um, or when you're on the job search, you know, you have to really be presenting yourself as somebody who can be part of something bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful and important in its own right. But um, I, I think about the content that I produced uh, when I was a part of larger organizations and some wasn't under my own name. And so going forward, I don't really get to own that stuff. And that's okay. Those organizations helped grow me and and really made me the professional I am today. But um, I really hope that folks can see themselves as a brand to a certain extent. I know that's kind of cliche, but it's true. And building uh, a list of search results under your brand, under your name, is really the way that you're going to be able to give yourself security. No matter who you work for,
0: no matter what you do, that stuff is always there and you can always be proud of it. That's an amazing piece of advice. It's funny you say that too, because I was just talking to, um, I'm getting more involved with, I always love students, but um, now I have a little more time on my hands, uh, especially I think students are very confused at the moment as like, what's what's next? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was talking to the student body president at Yale University. He's actually the first um, black student body president at Yale, which is amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. Go Yale and go Khalil. Khalil's more articulate than I am. and very, very smart, and he, I was, he's building his brand, you know, he got verified on, on Instagram, and, and, and really is, um, create, creating a platform for himself, and I said, listen, you should, if you have time in your hands this, this, uh, fall, um, your senior year, start a podcast, start making these connections with people, um, uh, who could be eventually, you know, in your referral network one day, right, or just building your network now, and, 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 um, we have such great platforms to do that that I think that's a very very good piece of advice, Allison. We're gonna have to take that one out and uh you know feature it for the for the podcast. <laughs> that's awesome,
1: yeah. But I love it, and I love that we get to have these conversations with those who are coming up. You know, they may be in our referral network today soon. Totally. Uh, and go Yale. I love that you're you're working with my alma mater.
0: I, oh yeah, I, you went to Yale. You went to yeah. So Khalil, I, I that's me. I forgot about that. So yeah, alma yeah. mater that's amazing yep. um awesome well allison i thank you so much for joining um joining us today on the influencer collective show quite frankly i know we could probably go for another hour but our time our attention span to people in this pandemic has just gotten a lot shorter so um <laughs> i wanted to i want to keep it to people this is the whole thing but is there where can people find you on social you know where where can people people where can people learn more about allison greenberg
1: Yeah, so always on LinkedIn, Allison with one L, Greenberg with an ERG, and on Twitter, um, Allison with a zero, A-L-I-S-0-N, Laura, L-A-U-R-A, on Twitter. Um, Or just shoot me an email, Uh, anybody who's interested in kind of pursuing any of the topics that we talked about, Greenberg at gmail.com. Uh, and thank you so much, Jen. I always love talking to you, and I'm sure we could go a lot longer than those attention spans last,
0: Uh, so yeah, great to see you, and thanks again. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Allison. I am your host, Jen Sherman of the Influencer Collective Show. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, follow us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, twitter linkedin all, all the works were there and we will catch you next time thanks so much guys